we kept going down the runway and we didn't take off. <laughs> we literally, the runway dropped out from below us and we actually were below the runway we just took off on. So there's not too many pilots that can say that. Hi, I'm Paul. In this episode, I'm speaking with Erica Armstrong, a former B-727 captain who has flown close to 30 different aircraft. Now, Erica has bestowed on herself the title of the chick in the cockpit. Now, it was relatively early into Erica's career when she received her dream job, being able to fly into what is a pretty unique airport. And I was a brand new FO on a citation and, um, you know, spending most of my time flying in the Midwest, getting to fly into the most beautiful airport in the entire world. I was just, it was Shangri-La. In this episode, we also talk about the future of aviation. As somebody with decades of experience and expertise, what is it that stands out to Erica? What, what, what particularly is most exciting to her? The concept of what is being presented out there in that, that market um, is helicopter type of aircraft, a vertical takeoff with, you know, rotating propellers like a helicopter. And so here's the disconnect. Now, Erica is an aviation professor and the VP of Business Development for Advanced Aircrew Academy. And she's turned many of these lessons and stories into a fun book for those that are getting into aviation and are currently working their way up through the ranks. Her eponymous novel, A Chick in the Cockpit, focuses on a few rules we highlight in this episode that hopefully every pilot takes away. Um, let the rules be the bad guy, let your SOPs be the bad guy, and say, hey, our company rules say this, um, that, you know, use that as your power. Um, so know them really well. The, the good pilots out there are the ones that have all those tools that they can use to argue for their own safety. This is Adventure Flying. any millennial i've been following you on linkedin for the longest time right and it just seems like you know whenever any major aviation news would happen it just seemed like you had such a unique expertise and an answer to a lot of what was happening out there so i'm, I'm interested just to introduce you to our to the general audience what's what's exactly your background that allows you to kind of speak with such confidence to, to a lot of different aviation matters yeah um yeah of course and you know that there's a ton of social media platforms out there um i prefer linkedin because it is slightly more professional um there's still you know a variety of things out there but i find that the conversation that actually trans within the posting um, is actually beneficial to everybody. So um, my niche in, in this whole thing is um, just like you were saying, to present topics that are out there, but then having a real conversation about it. A lot of times, you know, we'll share headlines and just kind of go with the flow of the conversation. But um, anytime there's an incident, an accident, um, a, a change in any environment in the aviation world, um, it's good to analyze it and have a conversation about it. Um, and a lot of the answers to any of the issues we have in aviation actually comes from the responses within the conversation. I mean, those are the people out on the line um, doing the thing, seeing aviation up front every single day. So to be able to offer them a platform where we can have communications back and forth. I think um, it just kind of built up that platform. Um, and th the reality of my social media is that I really started not liking social media. Um, but when I wrote the book, um, I was pitching the old fashioned way and pitching to agents. And I had an agent who said, hey, I love your book. I love the story, but I won't sign you unless you build up your platform. Um, so he's just said, you need across the board, um, you know, start building up this platform. And he was like, I don't know how you're going to do it. Just do it. <laughs> so um, I just found that um, 
actually speaking and putting my opinion out there, which was terrifying at first, actually drew out more genuine conversations. Um, a lot of times people just share the headlines and, and not put any input into it because it's scary, right, to put your opinion out there. There's going to be people that always disagree with you. And I found that I actually want that. Um, I see it a certain way. And so I will put it out there, the information and my viewpoint from it. But I truly do want people to look at it and say, hey, that's not the way I see it. Um, I think that's how we find our answers out there, especially to safety issues. Um, so that's kind of the, the crux of what I do out on LinkedIn. I always try to bring some fun and humor into it, too. Um, you know, it's, it's a very serious business. Um, so we'd like to throw some humor into it, too, because it, at the end of the day, it's the camaraderie, it's the humor, it's the stories that come out of aviation is that what makes it so memorable. Your career, talk a little bit about that. You, you weren't the kind of person who, you know, it sounds like fell in love with looking at planes when they were like five and then at 12 was just loved smelling the jet fuel, the kind of stories that I've interviewed a lot of pilots about. A lot of them got hooked early. You remember what hooked you and what ultimately kind of kept you into aviation? Yeah, I do. Um, and yeah, just like you're saying, a lot of my friends, they are like, oh, when I was uh, an infant, I looked up in the sky. I knew I, I wanted to be a pilot. <laughs> I was not that person. And I have a feeling that there's a ton of women out there um, and actually a lot of young girls that probably do the same thing. Um, when I was growing up, when we had career day, the boys and girls were put in separate rooms and given different opportunities and, and what to, to think. So, you know, just having that mindset growing up, I didn't, I never heard of a woman pilot except for Amelia Earhart. Um, I just, in, in the real world, I just didn't know um, any women out there that were flying airplanes. So I, I, I never once made that um, you know, tipping point of thought saying, oh, you know, this is something I would love to do. I mean, but how cool, right? If, uh, you know, you go to an air show or whatever, you look up and think, oh my gosh, that's so cool. But you always think that's for somebody else. Um, so I was at the University of Minnesota. I was working two jobs. I still didn't have enough money to get my tuition and my rent paid. So I was just scrambling, trying to find another job to fit in with my schedule. So, of course, aviation is 24-7, 365, and so they had a position open that had really crappy hours, um, but it fit in perfectly with my schedule. So it was just working the front desk of a fixed space operator, we call it FBO, and it was just a location where corporate aircraft came in, um, we you know, serviced the airplanes, got catering and hotels for the pilots and um, just basic services. But I started just learning a little bit about the industry and just how fascinating and the characters that would come in the door. And because I worked the night shift, um, after we did our paperwork, we were probably, you know, just kind of there responsible to you know, take care of airplanes coming and going. So it'd be quiet for a lot of uh, a lot of our shift. So I'd be in there with the line guys and they're all studying to get their um, pilot's licenses. And so I'm helping them quiz and go through their written exams. And I'm reading this going, well, wait, this is all actually common sense, quite logical. And I discovered I started answering the questions for them. And so for me, that was that tipping point to say, wait, this is not an unattainable thing. Um, so I, I built up the courage just to go next door and take a flying lesson, and I was hooked. And I was so lucky because they had just hired one of their first female flight instructors. So not only did I get to um, you know, take a flying, a discovery flight, but there was actually a woman who was giving me my flight instructions. So instantly I'm like, okay, this is something that I can do. I, I, I loved that getting in this airplane, looking down on the world, and it just completely disconnecting from everything else. Nothing else mattered at that moment. You're just focused solely on 
flying this airplane and I learned at a tower controlled airport. So you're always talking to these gods at the other end of, a, of the radio. And um, it's, you know, it's overwhelming, but in such a good way. Um, it's just an encompassing thing that you can do is to jump in an airplane and leave the earth for a while and you leave everything else behind. You lean kind of into the the idea like you don't hide from like you call yourself a chick and then you talk about throughout a lot of your writings about you know is that sexist am i being sexist as a woman right so like is that your way of trying to encourage more women to get in aviation to be themselves yeah the the chick in the cockpit is kind of tongue-in-cheek um it just kind of addresses the issue right then and there and more or less saying hey get over it <laughs> it's just a couple words and uh so it actually you know the the, the tagline kind of came out of the book, but um, yeah, it instantly just kind of makes fun with it, um, acknowledging it. And, you know, after traveling through my career and seeing the, how much our society has changed and the perspective is changing, we still have a long way to go. And I know it's frustrating when we look at the numbers and we still only see, I was just actually reading that um, of ATP pilots of captains, we're still only at 1.7%. Um, I know it's getting better um, and for the general population, for the percentages of uh, female pilots, but we're still really low, especially on the leadership side of it. So um, that was just a way for me to have some fun, acknowledge it right away. Um, you're going to run into misogyny in any industry. Um, you know, this one's a little bit additionally challenging only because you are working in such close quarters, um, especially uh, like I worked in business aviation for so long. And even takes it up another level because now you're spending all your time in the airplane with this person, but now you're on a four or five day layover. And so you're spending time outside, um, you know, just on layovers, going out for dinner and stuff. And so just learning the dynamics of working through the world, um, having a partner, um, you know, that you're working with, you know, male and females working together and how, 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 how does that work? How does that transpire? Um, and, uh, and, the reality is, of all the people that I've flown with, all the men, they were not used to flying with a woman. Um, and after a while, they just they learned, hey, this is just another person, another pilot. Um, doesn't matter if it's male or female; they're they're out there doing the same thing we are. Um, you know, and that for the, for that small percentage of, of of men out there who didn't want a woman in there just because she was a woman, um, you'll find in general that they are just lacking complete emotional intelligence. That they're usually jerk to everybody. Um, you know, but it's hard hard to you know disconnect from that because you're the one receiving that hatred just because of who you are. Um, but there's, you know, a lot of support out there, especially from your male cohorts, that they see it too. Um, so you'll find that there are still ways around those barriers and those people, um, and that, yeah, just you know, they're still there. Let's, you know, we'll be honest about it. But there are ways to work through it. And if you ever have a question, you can always email me, and I'll, I'll try to come up with ideas for you. So when I first asked Erica to be on the podcast, I prefaced it by asking her what would be, you know, the greatest adventure she would want to talk about. And she said, of course, she had so many different adventures, which of 30 years of flying, y you do. Uh, but one in particular stood out to her, her experience taking off in Telluride Airport as a fairly young uh, pilot as an FO. I'm interested in, and in, in, again, this podcast is about adventure flying. Adventure can mean a lot of different things, you know, both good and bad. Hey, can you get into that adventure? Because I think it did speak to a lot of what you're talking about is the proclivity of a young pilot to not want to speak up. And it sounds like that was a seminal moment for you as a young aviator that taught you a lesson that 
you know, stuck with you. Yeah, I, I, it's really hard to share your mistakes, but it's been my, my goal to share as many of them that I can, because every time I read about an accident, um, you can back it up and look at all the error sequences along the way. And so I'd like to share my stupidity so that nobody has to repeat my errors. Um, so uh, the, the Telluride experience, um, I was... Um, flying out of Flying Cloud Airport. And every weekend I used to fly a gentleman into the Telluride Airport. He had a house out there and I was a brand new FO on a citation and, um, you know, spending most of my time flying in the Midwest, getting to fly into the most beautiful airport in the entire world. I was just, it was Shangri-La. And this is before Telluride even had, um, they paved all the streets and everything. So the runway was still pretty run down. Um, you'd look out there and all six windsocks are turning a different direction. And, uh, you know, now they put in EMAS and they, you know, fix the dip in the runway. But um, so, you know, this, this conversation then is a kind of about first officers not speaking up. Um, and truly, if you look at the majority of flight crew uh, errors and accidents, you listen and see the sequence where the first officer maybe had seen what the error is, but wasn't emphatic enough about speaking up. So on this particular day, we were going back to um, Minnesota. We're pretty you know, loaded up and we had an 8.30 a.m. departure scheduled. But as everybody in corporate aviation knows, your passengers are never late because whenever they arrive is your departure time. So we, we had a time of 8.30, but we got a phone call saying that they were going to be late. Um, they ended up being significant later, so it was almost noon. And I had already done my performance chart calculations, and um, I had been flying with the chief pilot uh, for years, or not for years, for months. And um, this on this particular flight, it was a new captain. He had more time than, than I did total time, but I had more time in the airplane, but he was flying captain. So I had done the calculations and I said, Hey, we're, you know, during our conversation, I said, we're just going to have to plan on no flap takeoff. Well, in the Midwest, you, you very rarely ever do that. You're always doing a flap takeoff. And um, he's like, no, we're, we're not. We're because we've got, you know, in his mind, he's thinking a short runway at Telluride and that there's no way we can do a, you know, a no flap takeoff. So um, we, you know, time goes by, it gets warmer outside, and I don't redo my calculations, but I'm pretty firm knowing that um, we need to do a no-flap takeoff. And the owner of the airplane shows up, and he's a big aviation nerd, but he never got his licenses, but he always wants to be involved in the flight and talk about what we're going to do. And so we had this conversation about the difference between the flap and no-flap takeoff. And um, so a no-flap takeoff just means that you're going to use up a lot more runway. But by the time you're in the air, you actually are at a higher airspeed and more the airplane's more prepared to fly. So, uh, you know, I, I was going back and forth and, you know, kind of, you know, telling the captain that this is what the, the charts were saying, but he said, no, we're going to take off with flaps. Well, I've been flying the citation for so long and I just, you know, this airplane does everything you want it to. I've been used to taking off out of a 900 foot elevation airport and that thing just hops off the runway. So we get to the end of the runway. We've got an extra passenger on board that we didn't anticipate. And the temperature now is, especially in the mountains, it goes from you know 40 degrees Fahrenheit and three hours later, it's 80 degrees uh, Fahrenheit. So we get to the end of the runway and my captain does a nice slow takeoff roll because in your when you fly business aviation, all you care about is passenger comfort. So we're doing a nice gentle takeoff and we you know start rolling down the runway very slowly. It feels like call out V1 and then there's this long wait before you get to V2. 
uh, get to rotate and uh, he goes to pull back on the yoke and the airplane just kind of skips. Stall warning horn goes off and then we settle right back down on the runway. And we've already eaten up two thirds of the runway and we're at takeoff speed. So we're committed at this point. So we kept going down the runway and we didn't take off. <laughs> we literally, the runway dropped out from below us and we actually were below the runway we just took off on. So there's not too many pilots that can say that. Um, if you're familiar with the Telluride Airport, you can look at that plateau and realize how that happens. Um, so we pulled the gear up and accelerated and as you know, we finally got up to <laughs> field elevation, uh, finally got a positive rate, uh, continued that climb out, but um, you know, one thing at a time, one sequence sequence at a time, um, you know, the whole thing took maybe 10 seconds. Um, but you just realize if we had just made one more mistake, we wouldn't be here to even talk about it. And, you know, once we got up to altitude, both of us were, were silent. Um, the, the owner of the airplane had already come up and was, you know, um, I can't use the words on the radio, but um, that was the last time the captain ever flew this, this gentleman again. And um, so, terrifying, ter you know, once you re realize how close you were to just losing it all, um, at that moment, you're not scared, but when you get up to altitude and you think back about what you just did, that's when the adrenaline starts going through your body and you're thinking about, okay, you know, what, what went wrong there? And, um, yeah, you know, it, above all, um, what went wrong was me not speaking up and saying, Hey, I, we're not, going to take off unless we are abiding by the, the performance charts. But it was that moment for me that said, my ego is never worth risking life. So from that moment on, I was always willing to put my foot down and say yes or no to, to whatever was going to happen next. So I don't want people to have that terrifying moment where they speak up. Um, but that's what confidence and experience gives you. And that's so hard to do when you're a new, new first officer. So, um, you know, it's those little moments that you're all going to have out there. Um, you know, put that in your psyche and use it well in the, in the future. And hopefully you can share your stories with the next person so they don't have to go through those, those terrifying moments. Yeah. It's interesting because really good, safe pilots have that blend of, confidence and humility. But I don't know how you really achieve that without knowing your limits, without finding your boundaries. You know, you don't want to go out explicitly trying to find it, but it seems like if you fly long enough, really the path to becoming a safe pilot and having that that humble um, confidence requires you to, to maybe go through a couple of these things. And it sounds like the most important thing is to just learn from these mistakes, not to blame somebody else, but to really understand and reflect on your own like what you can take away from this. Do you think that that's accurate and, and what you probably learned the most from, from at least that experience? It is. And one other thing um, which I've seen evolve over the years is the, the safety culture of a company. So the company I had been flying um, with at this particular time, they ended up having two fatal accidents. And um, so, you know, at the, because I had never flown anywhere else at a big flight department, um, what I saw is, you know, I thought that that's the way it is. Um, but that's not true. I think that um, having a good safety culture, especially in any type of, type of type of flight department where you're flying with multiple people, multiple airplanes, um, and having that um, that basis, you know, the airlines have, have done really well with doing that. Um, but setting the standards and saying, you know, having that pre-flight briefing and that um, takeoff briefing and making sure that both pilots are on the same page before you push those throttles up. Um, you know, it's um, at this big, big company that I was flying for, 
their only goal was to get the mission done. And um, especially because I was flying an air ambulance, you have that pressure and you put it on yourself to make sure that your passengers get to where they need to be on time. Um, and, but, you know, I, after now that I've worked in other flight departments, I've seen the contrast and the differences. And it does affect the way that um, pilots communicate with each other so that CRM is there and um, it truly can make all the difference in the world. So uh, yeah, the, not only for myself and speaking up, but also looking and making sure that a company has respect for the, the that conversation, that safety culture um, is, is secondary. That's such an important point, but that's a lot of people feel like that's easier said than done in a lot of ways, right? Cause you have, it's very difficult to get a pilot job. They, they worry if they'll speak up. How do you still tell somebody, you know, who is a young pilot who feels like their job might be on the line? Is it, is it just not worth it? The job, if someone's risking your safety and, and full stop there. Yeah, there's, there's definitely ways to do it. And it's hard because like you're saying, it, it takes time and nuance. Um, you know, I, I've, I've found, cause I was so serious when I first started flying, I, you know, never cracked a joke, never put any humor on the situation, but I found if you're able to use a little bit of that and relax the atmosphere, um, it's, it allows a little bit more of free flowing conversation. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's so hard cause there's not a good blanket answer. My goal, even when I was a very new pilot was to look at my big giant circle of safety, right? Within that circle, there's an infinite number of variables of choices. And, uh, you know, a lot of times I wouldn't agree with my captain, but it's still within that circle of safety. Um, so you have to know within yourself, okay, this is the edge of it. And now this person I'm flying with is going way over it. Um, so, you know, there's all those variables within the circle that, you know, maybe you you want to take, like the pilot wants you to take off with a component or an avionics that isn't working quite right. So you weigh your choice and say, okay, well, if this component fails, are we still going to be safe? Um, you know, something like that for you to have that, that, that tipping point to say, okay, this is way beyond that circle. This is completely unsafe. And then feeling confident and firm with yourself that you can say no. Um, it just, you know, even I, I can think of, you know, uh, many situations, even like shooting an approach to minimums where we definitely did not see uh, the runway and the captain wanting to go back and try it again. And, um, you know, at that point, you don't want to be arguing, right? You're, you're just a few feet off the ground. You're trying to figure out what to do next. Um, but I've had a couple instances where uh, I've just said, hey, we're going to our, to our alternate and just picking up the microphone and telling um, ATC that we're going to our alternate and um, then having the conversation on the ground. And it's not easy, but we're on the ground and we're having the conversation. So I felt that that was um, you know, a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that you know, we, we, the choice was made for us. Um, it wasn't even my choice because the rules are the rules um, and using those rules to fight for you. Um, let the rules be the bad guy. Let your SOPs be the bad guy and say, hey, our company rules say this. Um, that, you know, use that as your power. Um, so know them really well. The, the good pilots out there are the ones that have all those tools that they can use to argue for their own safety. I, to circle back to the idea of adventure, what ultimately allowed you to want to get back into the cockpit after a scary experience or, or another different scary experience? What what ultimately is the thrill or the drive that keeps you in aviation? So, so there's never once a time where I thought I couldn't get out of a situation. Um, so that's that's the thing with being a pilot is you have to go up there and have the confidence and the and 
uh, ego in the good way to say, no matter what happens, no matter what system fails, I know I can get this airplane on the ground. You have to have that. So um, those scary experiences aren't scary at the moment. There's something that you learn from later on after you get you know back to the hangar. Um, so yeah, the, especially when I was flying um, air ambulance and even when I was flying the 727, I worked for a, a Part 121 supplemental, which means we did the old boring routes, but we also did a ton of charter with the 727. Um, and so every day was different. All these new challenges um, so that that adventure is actually what drove me to continuously want more and more and more. Because the thrill of getting that flight done and under all those changing, challenging environmental conditions is such a thrill. It's such a sense of accomplishment. Um, and I got to meet such fascinating people, both pilots and passengers. Um, you know, I used to get to fly the all those professional sports teams. I even flew the, um, they were called the WWF at the time, the wrestlers. Um, I've got to fly them around for a week um, from city, city to city and we're flying into very small airports. Um, the 727 had one unique feature. You wouldn't think it would be uh, anything that would cause it to um, be able to be a good charter airplane, but it had aft air stairs. So we were self-contained. That means we can go into an, any airport and we can unload our passengers and load them back up again where none of the other big airplanes could do that because they all need a jet bridge. So one little simple thing like that allowed this airplane, and it had great performance numbers given how enormous the airplane was. So we used to fly into these really small airports that had never seen a 727 come in. It was so fun, um, especially even before 9-11, we would you know, bring the local people up and give them tours. And that's where that spark of aviation even starts is having that you know, openness for other people to come into aviation and see the things in it. And, you know, hopefully some of those kids that got to see the, the airplane that, that went with them through school saying, hey, maybe I want to do that. So, um, yeah, the, the, I, for me, aviation is the same thing as adventure. Um, no matter what you're doing, uh, every, every moment of that day is going to be different than the next. And that's what I loved about it. And I think that's the, the spirit of aviation that you see in the pilots, uh, no matter what niche or an industry they're flying in, um, you still see that same thread. What's exciting to you? Like the 727 landing a few years ago was something that was new, something that these people had never seen before. And it was thrilling because you were you were the pioneer. You were the, the piece of the future, bringing it to them and, and showing it to them up close. What do you view as that being today? Is there anything that's out there that you see in aviation that you think is really exciting and will dictate the future or already kind of represents the future? Yeah, so I have my seaplane rating too, and I'm I'm originally from Minnesota, and for me, having a seaplane rating in Minnesota meant that I can go anywhere. Um, then I move out to Colorado, and at the time, there was no place to land a seaplane, so <laughs> I've had the contrast of both. But even seeing these, um, you know, just the stole aircraft that can take off and land on riverbanks and. Um, especially going up to Alaska. I finally got up to Alaska two summers ago and just seeing the aviation culture up there, it's it's incredible. And I, I, to respect the weather up there, especially, I've never seen weather change so fast and have fog come in so quickly. It was, <laughs> I just had ultimate respect for for the pilots that, that deal with that on a daily basis. But, um, you know, even when I was flying charter, I used to fly up to Yellowknife way up in Northern uh, Canada and, you know, landing and it looks like you're landing on the moon. There's just nothing up there. 
Um, that to me is what the adventure of aviation is, is bringing you to those far reaches, to those places that you can't even access by road. Um, if you look at Alaska, most of it's still inaccessible by, uh, by roads and you have to get in by airplane. Uh, so that that to me is, uh, you know, the definition of adventure and aviation. So putting down in the middle of a lake and nobody else is out there and, you know, watching the loons uh, swim past you. That's that's the definition of it. Do you have a hot take on on the eVTOL stuff that you see out there? I mean, do you believe in the flying car? I mean, do you think that's inevitable or do you have questions about those? I mean, I know it's a very broad topic, but is that is that part of the, uh, you know, the short takeoff and landing aircraft things that excite you as well? Yeah, uh, you know, the the concept of what is being presented out there in that that market um, is helicopter type of aircraft, a vertical takeoff with, you know, rotating propellers like a helicopter. And so here's the disconnect is of all the pilot or all the students I have coming into my classroom uh, hundreds over the years, I think I I've had maybe three people who want to be helicopter pilots, uh, which you wouldn't think it would make a big difference, but the 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 concepts that are coming out right now are, are that is that type of um, architecture of aircraft, and I don't see a lot of pilots um, thinking ahead and wanting to be in that market because being a helicopter pilot right now it's a little hard. Uh, the pay is really good because there's not that many jobs. It's usually air ambulance, a couple, uh, you know, maybe traffic or working for a news station. So there's not a lot of them out there, but the the skills required of the pilots for these type of things is that helicopter concept. So I, I see a disconnect there, but yeah, I mean, somebody's going to figure it out. Somebody's going to come up with a, with a logical idea. Everything I've seen out there right now, I, I look at it and I see huge issues. <laughs> so everything that comes out, I'm like, well, that's not quite it. That's not quite it. Um, but we're getting there. We have to start somewhere. Um, you know, traffic, especially out in California, um, the high density cities, they got to figure something out. Um, although I did see um, there's doing um, a seaplane shuttle service up on the eastern seaboard. So that's another um area that they could probably um, expand on. Um, but yeah, the whole, all of it's exciting. Um, you know, there's going to be a lot of trial and error and um, uh, yeah, I'm always anxious to see what comes out next and um, everybody's got to fine tune their concepts and we can only do that by trying it. I want to, I want to stay on the seaplane and, and the, the element of Colorado, right? So Colorado, unless you're really inside aviation, you live in Colorado, right now? Are you based in Colorado? Yeah. 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 A lot. Of, I think a lot of people outside aviation might not realize how important Colorado is as a state. I mean, everything from GPS signals to, I mean, the University of Colorado is, I believe, receives the most public funding from NASA of any university. I mean, it, Colorado is, is, for all intents and purposes, the center of aviation in this country. Just speaking to the overall culture of the state, I guess, can you just speak to that broadly? Because I, I think, I don't know how many people are really aware of how much aviation is really in that state. Yeah, isn't that funny? And I also heard that um, there's more um, deep sea divers certifications here <laughs> than anywhere else. And right, we know how to do it. <laughs> that adventure, it's that that. Whatever draws people here to Colorado is that same thread. Um, so yeah, we have the spaceport here now. It's the the airport that's right next to uh, Denver International Airport. They've renamed named it the spaceport, um, and we do have a lot of techno technology companies here. Um, um, but I, you know, I, if you look at the big picture of that thread and why it is, people come to Colorado to climb mountains and to challenge themselves, and it's that same 
mindset that brings people into, uh, you know, wanting to work for NASA or all the, you know, aircraft manufacturing companies out here. Boom Supersonic is out here right at the Centennial Airport. Um, but it's, it's that same mindset that you want to try something new and different and that trial and error, it, it draws a lot of those companies here. And, and the elevation, obviously, right? Can you speak to... I'm, I've learned to fly in Los Angeles. Bravo Airspace is everywhere you go. Someone's in your ear talking to you. What's it like teaching someone to fly in Colorado? Yeah, and I, I live at 8,700 feet, so I'm... I'm actually at a higher cabin altitude than I am, you know, when you go fly airplanes. So, um, yeah, and we we still have a lot of airspace that's controlled out here, but there are a lot of places that you can go uncontrolled. But then, of course, you're now in the mountains, right? So you have that challenge. So I, I do encourage my students, um, even though they're out on their adventures, I try to teach them how to do at least do VFR flight following. Um, just, you know, making sure that somebody's out there to keep an eye on you and you're talking to somebody. Um, and I can't even imagine learning out in LA, the complicated airspace. I don't, I don't know if I'd ever go VFR out there. I mean, it's just a lot easier to uh, file IFR. And so I tell my students that your private pilot license is just a way for you to practice for your instrument rating. Um, you, you need need to go and keep going beyond that too, so that you can keep your safe and still go be adventurous. You know, I, everyone's like, oh, bah humbug, you know, I, I don't want to talk to anybody. But um, knowing all the tools and using all those tools will help you go deeper into your adventures. Um, knowing mountain flying, making sure you take those mountain flying courses. Um, Mother Nature, man, she can be wicked and she can change her mood in an instant. Especially where I live, I mean, it's amazing how fast it can change up here, um, and you have to respect that. So, um, yeah, the, the irony of, of, of freedom and adventure is that you need to ha spend that time on the ground getting, getting your knowledge so that you can have some more fun. Special thanks again to Erica for joining us and, and being a part of the Icon Aircraft Adventure Flying podcast. Uh, check out our book, A Check in the Cockpit. It's available wherever books are sold. Also, if you're into the LinkedIn thing, she always has some really good posts. That's where initially I was introduced to her on uh, LinkedIn. Uh, so again, thanks, Erica, for joining us on the podcast. My name is Paul. You can follow us, iconaircraft.com, to learn more about Icon Aircraft. Again, thanks for listening, everybody. Take care. Bye.